A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It doesn't look or feel like Scotland at all. It doesn't look or feel like anywhere else in Britain. It has an atmosphere and an appearance, a soul all of its own. And when the sun shines on it, it's like the waiting room of heaven itself. In this week's podcast, I'm taking you to a place that feels like no other. Burial tombs and ceremonial halls temples, treasures, and a snapshot of lives long hidden by time. A place that once shone so brightly. A centre of power and ideas to rival anywhere in the British Isles. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me, and the whole planet. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles. In last week's podcast, you took us to the west coast of Ireland, to a time when our species changed forever. Where's next on your love letter? The next place that I think is important historically and in the chronological order of how we're telling this story of the British Isles, is Orkney. It's very tempting to see the the centres of gravity in the British Isles as having always been as they are now. And obviously, if you were to say what's the most important place in the British Isles, most people would probably say London. And they would certainly say the southeast of England for lots of reasons. It's where there's a density of population, for one thing. It's closest to continental Europe, so it's where we're physically closest to the the rest of the wider world. In London, and for a long time, are very important places. Uh, It's the Mother of Parliaments sits there in the House of Commons, the House of Lords, where the decisions that affect our lives, they're all taken there. Uh, The much-vaunted financial sector, the banks, they sit in London. The monarch has her principal residence in London. So it's easy to think that London has always been the centre of attention in these British Isles. But it's very useful to consider the possibility, the reality in fact, that at other times in the past, other places, unexpected places, have mattered as much, if not more, that other places overlooked now were the places that if travellers were coming to our part of the world 
they wouldn't have been heading for London. They would have been making for somewhere else. And believe it or not, on the little archipelago of Orkney, which is 18 miles off the northeast coast of Scotland, is one of those locations that archaeology and archaeologists tell us used to matter a great deal. There's quite a lot of fun to be had, really, with with just taking a map of, say, the British Isles and Northwest Europe and looking at it up the right way and then, just for the hell of it, turn it upside down, turn it through 180 degrees and suddenly your perspective is completely altered and you don't... Orkney no longer looks like somewhere peripheral and out on the edge. On the contrary, in that suddenly unfamiliar context of the North Sea... uh, the edge of the North Atlantic, in the vicinity of Scandinavia and Northern Europe, suddenly Orkney and indeed Shetland look like little stepping stones, little little roundabout hubs on the way from other places to our part of the world. And suddenly you can see how, with a different perspective, somewhere like Orkney actually isn't on the edge at all, it's at the heart We live in the modern world and we take so much for granted, don't we? Yes. It's lazy, really, to think that, say, Glasgow, Edinburgh, uh, Cardiff, uh, Belfast, Dublin and London and Manchester and Birmingham, because they're the big centres now, that they've always been the big centres. Now, there's a lot of history to those places. You know, London's been a a sort of London for a couple of thousand years, uh, given that the Romans made camp there as well and by the time the Romans arrived there was already an important point on the map at that bridging of the Thames but you go back further and there is no London none of those cities, none of those centres exist in any form and it's other places that have significance When did modern archaeologists and historians start to realise how important Orkney once was? It's always been, I mean, for over a century, it's been a kind of a mecca for archaeologists, uh, particularly archaeologists who are interested in the Neolithic, which is the time when farming first arrived in our part of the world. Neolithic is, is, is that time when people had stopped depending so much on hunting and were concentrating on, on domesticating crops and animals. Well, Orkney is a wonderful source of information, always has been, Uh, because of the survival there of some spectacular stone monuments that many people have heard of. Scarabray, which is the wonderful little kind of Fred and Wilma (laughs) Flintstones-type village that everyone can sort of picture in their mind's eye. Uh, There are stone circles like uh, the Ring of Brodgar, the Stones of Stennis. Uh, There's a magnificent chambered tomb, a house for the dead, uh, called Maze Howe. And those were given world heritage status in 1999. So significant are they in the world. They're right up there with with the pyramids of Egypt and Machu Picchu in South America. They have that kind of international significance. uh, And it's called the heart of Neolithic Orkney. Uh, And part of the wonder of it is that most of them, the best of them, are within walking distance of one another. Right. You can walk from the Stones of Stennis to Maze Howe. You can walk from Maze Howe to the Ring of Brodgar. They're focused around uh, a narrow isthmus, which is to say a finger of land. Right. More or less in the geographical centre of mainland Orkney. 
You know, Orkney is an archipelago. There are about 70 islands. About 20 of them are inhabited. But by far the majority of the 20, 21,000 people who live on Orkney live on mainland, as they call it, which is the, the biggest island. And more or, more or less at the centre of mainland is this finger of land. It, it has a, a, a freshwater loch on one side called Loch of Harry. And on the other side, it has a seawater loch, which is the Loch of Stennis. And it's just this narrow strip of land. At one end are the stones of Stennis. Uh, at the other end is the Ring of Brodgar. And nearby is this lovely big pregnant grassy bump that is Mays Howe. In the, more or less in the middle of this finger of land, there was always a bump, an an enormous raised area in the centre, like a knuckle on that finger, like a bump of a knuckle. But it was so big uh, that archaeologists and everybody else had just assumed it was a natural feature in the landscape, just a a build-up of material at the end of the last ice age or whatever. It was just natural. Uh, around somewhere in the 1920s a farmer uh, ploughing his field had turned up a stone with a beautifully incised design on it but even in the 1920s people were well aware that you know you can barely stick a spade in the ground in Orkney (laughs) without turning up something of significance so he just set it to one side and and didn't think much more about it Uh, but then in 2003 another farmer using a modern metal plough struck a piece of dressed masonry while he was ploughing his furrow, which is to say a piece of stone that had been shaped by human beings. It wasn't just a rough boulder. It had been given a kind of a square shape. It had been worked. And he was he was curious enough about it and responsible enough about it that he, he called in archaeologists. And given that this bump is right smack in the middle of the World Heritage heart of Neolithic Orkney, it was deemed prudent to have a proper look in the the area surrounding where the stone was. And well, they opened up some trenches there and it rapidly became apparent that it was not just a natural bump in the landscape. It was the result of many, many years of building in the past. If it was in the Middle East, it would be called a tell site. Uh, In places like Jericho, uh, they're called tells because people lived there for thousands of years and they would build and then after a period of time they would demolish the buildings and then they would build on top and then those would get demolished and they would build on top and gradually there's this you know it it rises up and you you get this bump well it rapidly became apparent that this bump this knuckle on the finger this isthmus of land was a tell it was a deep deposit of building rubble and since 2003 and even now today at the next digging season, they will investigate more of this place and they will find more buildings. Uh, it has now gone on the map as the Ness of Brodgar. Ness is an old word uh, with some of the same uh, etymological roots as nose, because it's a bump, you know, like a nose on a face. So it's called the Ness of Brodgar. And archaeologists during that, you know, dozen and more years that they've been working there, have established that at the Ness of Brodgar, about 5,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, those Neolithic farmers started building in that location. First of all, they built two great walls to set aside a special area. They built, the, the archaeologists call them the Great Walls of Brodgar. 
and they, they were built from side to side on the isthmus. So now you've got a, a special sacred space that you can control access to. There'd be gates in it, but the walls are like five or six feet thick, ten feet tall, or they would have been with, with controlled access. And then inside that, that special space, and it's, it covers an area approximately the size of five football pitches. It's a massive area of land. In that area, those farmers 5,000 years ago began building, and they carried on for a 1,000 years. It was no casual experiment. Once they started building there, they just kept on going. They would raise a complex of structures, use them for a generation, maybe longer, and then the next group would come in and they would demolish those buildings, and on top of the, the rubble, they would raise more. And this process went on, unabated, without pause, for a thousand years. The story that the archaeologists tell there, it's, it's incredibly fluid and changing. Every season, they, they learn a bit more and the, and the story changes. Every day, sometimes, there's a discovery and they have to reconsider their understanding of the Ness of Brodgar. Uh, the, the buildings that were being raised, uh, some of them have the look of domestic structures, uh, the, like a house that people might have lived in, uh, but others have more of a ritual appearance about them. It's very difficult to make analogies, but you might say like a, like a little church. Some of the walls were painted with pigment, so they were given colour. Uh, some had uh, geometrical or uh, other designs scratched into the stones. Sometimes uh, artworks were, were incorporated into the fabric of the buildings. Uh, so someone would have made a, a stone with an incised design on it, and then it's within the fabric of the walls, never to be seen. Very strange. For, why would you do it? Well, presumably that was to be the gods or the ancestors or the spirits would have known and appreciated this work. Some of the effort at the Nessa Brodger might just have been inspired by the, by the act of creating. The, the people answering some need, answering questions that they had about what it meant to be human and alive just by the act of going through the process of building. Ritual behaviour in its own right. And they carried on building these structures for a thousand years. Quite late in the day, uh, after about a thousand years, a very, very large building was constructed. It seems that it was built at a time when much of the rest of the nest had been levelled. So other buildings had been, had been flattened to make way for this bigger structure. Mm. It's very large. It's about the size of a modern barn with walls eight feet thick, ten feet high, built of dry stone. The whole thing would have been capped off with a roof of flagstones, slabs. It would have been quite pale in colour. Uh, the, the natural stone of Orkney is a pale sandstone, so it would have been visible for miles around, this, this great greyish pale structure. It remained in use for perhaps a generation, maybe between 25 and 40 years. And then finally it too was put out of use. It was deliberately demolished. It wasn't left to fall down, it was deliberately destroyed. Now we know that because part of the act of putting it out of use was, a, was the mother of all barbecues. Around 400 head of cattle were slaughtered on the same day. Now that gives you enough beef to feed 10,000 people at once. Wow. So it may have been an event that focused the attention of the entire population of Orkney. It may even have drawn in people from further afield. 
when all this beef was cooked, the bones were piled around the outside of, of this great building, and then the building was collapsed on top of it all. So it was a great act of deliberate destruction. Whatever had been the function of that building, whatever need they had felt for at that time had passed, and they put it out of use. And a thousand years of, of building uh, and ritual behaviour at the Ness of Brodgar came to an end, and the people went away at that point to live different lives in other places, and the Ness was forgotten for 4,000 years. Incredible. Incredible it was forgotten, and incredible it lasted for a thousand years. Yes, you have to wonder, and even archaeologists cannot satisfactorily answer the question, what idea mattered so much that it preoccupied people for a thousand years? The religion of Christianity is 2,000 years old. It's an idea that has sustained itself for 2,000 years. Well, there was something on Orkney that kept those people focused, repeating the same activity for a thousand years, half the lifetime of Christianity. And after all, these are people who, their lives are physically demanding anyway. It would appear that during the Neolithic uh, on Orkney, uh, the climate was quite kind, probably kinder than it is today, a little bit milder, a bit more sunshine in the summertime, more of a Garden of Eden. Orkney, if you've never been, is a a heart-stoppingly beautiful place. Strangely, although it's only 18 miles from mainland Scotland, it doesn't look or feel like Scotland at all. It doesn't look or feel like anywhere else in Britain. It doesn't look or feel like even Scandinavia, which is you know relatively nearby as well. It has an atmosphere and an appearance, a soul all of its own. It's just Orkney. And when the sun shines on it, even today, it's, it's, it's like the waiting room of heaven itself. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. And it would appear that four or 5,000 years ago, the climate was even kinder. And so the, the, the living would have been quite good by comparison with other places. So the crops would have grown. They would have ripened. Uh, there would have been surplus food. Uh, the, the farmers would have been able to rely on a food supply. And that, at times of the year, gave them free time. And they dedicated that free time to these building projects, like the Stones of Stennis, like the Ring of Brodgar, like the structures inside the Ness of Brodgar. They had the time for it. But, but nonetheless, imagine the kind of lives these people lived. They're hard-working farmers, people of toil, and yet they were dedicated to a belief system that expressed itself in the creation of these monumental structures. Another aspect of the story that's fascinating beyond description uh, is that that mania for building circles, uh, its oldest expressions are on Orkney. Uh, The stones of Stennis are are the oldest monument of their kind that we know about in the British Isles so far. So whatever the idea was that someone or some group of people felt that they should be raising stones in a circular shape, that idea seems to have occurred, first of all, in Orkney. And it was from Orkney that it gradually spread the length of the Long Island of Britain. You wouldn't have Avebury and Stonehenge had it not been for the idea that occurred to someone for the first time on Orkney 500 years before. 
there's also a kind of pottery that was in use during the Neolithic that archaeologists call grooved ware. Quite simply, because the, when the when the clay is still soft and wet, it, it's scratched with with grooved patterns. So it's called grooved ware. It's found all over Britain, but the oldest grooved ware is found on Orkney. So that comes out of that part of the world as well. Then there are the the buildings that people are familiar with from from Scarabray. And what's very distinctive about that building style is that the corners of the rooms, which are broadly speaking rectangular, but the corners are curved. Now that architectural design with curved corners, that also spread the length of Britain. You know, there are, there are, there are living structures close to places like Stonehenge and Avebury people, that people were living in that show the same footprint, like a playing card. You know, if you put a playing card down, it's mostly rectangular, but the corners are curved. Well, they were doing that, that idea also spread. So there was a whole kind of package of ideas. It's like Ikea. It's like Orton was the <laughs> Ikea of the Neolithic. It was the, I, everybody, people up there came up with a style of house and a style of furniture. And everybody else wanted a bit of that for themselves. And over the next several hundred years, everyone was living in Orcadian, Orkney-style houses. The idea, the best idea that everybody wanted a piece of 5,000 years ago was an Orkney, and it spread from there. So that people perhaps coming to the archipelago of the British Isles from maybe other parts of Europe, they might have been drawn to the Ness of Brodgar. Not London, not Cardiff, not Dublin, they might have been making for the Ness of Brodgar because that was the place that exerted the gravitational pull. And it might not be it might not be too excessive to describe Orkney at that time as the ancient capital of the British Isles, the place where everybody wanted to go. Amazing. And are there are there finds from other parts of the world there or is it just Orkney finds? That's a very good question. No, it's it's um it's the people there don't seem to have been importing ideas or materials from further afield. Also within the fabric of the buildings, sometimes buried under the floors or, or worked into the walls, uh, there are beautiful mace heads. A mace head's like a kind of like a hammer head, I suppose. Uh, you would you, you take a pebble and you and you shape it and grind it until it takes on the, the shape that you want, a, a nice symmetrical form, and then you, you bore a hole through the, the middle of it so that it can take a wooden shaft. You, yeah. you end up with a thing like a hammer. Archaeologists call them maces, and the, and, the, and the business end of it is called a mace head. And they quite often, at the Nessa Brodgar, find these in the, in the fabric of the walls. In almost every case, they've been deliberately broken. Okay, so before it was put into the wall, it was snapped in two. And this is a this is a behaviour that repeats again and again and again, even after the Stone Age, into the time when tools and, and, and other objects were being made of metal. There seems to have been an idea that people had that after you'd used something valuable for a certain period of time, it was appropriate to surrender it, to sacrifice it, it's almost like settling an account. It's a very sophisticated way of thinking. It's like people were saying, well, I took this stone from the world and I made it into a mace head. And, well, my father used it and then he passed it on to me and I've used it. But now the time has come to repay the debt. And so 
in order to pay it back, you, you break it so that no one can ever use it again. It has no more utility for human beings. And now that it's broken, you, you put it into the fabric of a house or bury it under the floor. And it's a giving back. Wow. Thousands of years later, people were still doing something similar. You know, they would take an iron sword uh, or a bronze knife and put it into a lake. And it seems that always the idea is human beings have had the use of this gift from the world for long enough. Now the time has come to pay it back, to settle the debt. And so we'll bend it in half, break it, or in the case of stone tools, smash it against another rock until it's in two pieces, and then you've settled the debt. What type of stones are these Neolithic buildings and monuments made from? They were very lucky on Orkney in that, geologically speaking, the sandstone of, of Orkney, it splits very readily into long slabs. You know, if you can exploit a fault in the bedrock and hammer something into it, the stone has a tendency to split into slabs and long strips. And that, that the presence of all this material, like, like natural Lego bricks, may in part have inspired the building because they had access to this, this easily obtainable building material. But more than anything in the Neolithic, Orkney seems to have been an originator of ideas, a, a creator of new, rather than a place that was absorbing ideas from other places. Orkney was, was, a, was a nest of ideas. And do we know what daily life would have been like for these people? Farmers, uh, we know that they're, uh, they're growing crops... Uh, cereal crops uh, they're keeping animals uh, we know they had cattle for a start because there's cattle bones, shin bones found piled around that great temple structure that was finally uh, demolished at the Ness of Brodger so they're, they're farmers who have animals and crops there are other tombs on the, on the islands uh, so we have found uh, human remains uh, we know that uh, people were surviving injury, sometimes on bones and on skulls. There's, there's the marks of wounds that didn't kill them, you know, uh, dents and marks that, that, you know, that people survived. Uh, at other times, the, the injuries look as if they were fatal. You know, so there's, sometimes you find a skull with, a, with, a, with damage to it that suggests that that was the cause of death. But we, we know that the people were living farming lives typical of the Neolithic, typical of the lives being led all over Western Europe five and six thousand years ago. Hard lives. Unimaginably hard by comparison to our own soft snowflake existences. <laughs> uh, but on Orkney, by comparison to other places, it looks as though the farmers, for about a thousand years or more, had, you know, the living was quite good by comparison to other places. They could rely on the sun in the springtime and in the summertime to ripen their crops. They could rely on there being enough uh, grass for their for their cattle to to eat, uh, and so they were able to rather than being narrowly focused all the time on just keeping themselves and their families alive, they could look up to the sky and consider the bigger questions. So as well as subsisting, they were looking up at the sky and wondering about what the lights were in the curtain of night why the moon and the sun moved in the, in the repeating patterns that they had identified, uh, what it meant to be human, what it meant to be alive. And in seeking to answer those questions, 
they raised the stone circles. They looked after their dead in specific ways. Uh, and they built structures like those at the Ness of Brodgar, uh, where they conducted uh, whatever religious or, or special ceremonies seemed to them uh, the, the ceremonies that mattered. What seems incredible is that this site, which has turned out to be of such international importance, was only discovered in 2003. It's been beneath our feet all that time. We just didn't know it. World-changing answers are still out there to be revealed. The discovery of the Ness of Brodgar, uh, it, 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 there's no hyperbole about it that would be out of place. I'm an archaeologist by, by training. Uh, I'm particularly interested in the time when the hunters became farmers. I, I find that, the Neolithic, I find that particularly interesting. For an archaeologist interested in the Neolithic, there has been no more significant find anywhere in my lifetime than the Nessa Brodgar on Orkney. The discoveries, the understanding that's been coming out of the Nessa Brodgar since 2003 has massively changed and augmented our understanding of the Neolithic, not just of Orkney, not just of Britain, but of Europe. It's a discovery of world significance. It seems astonishing that there's still important stuff out there waiting to be revealed. The beauty of it is, nothing has left, with the exception of a few bits and pieces of metal that have been blasted out of the atmosphere aboard rockets. Everything that the human species has done has stayed on planet Earth. And everything we've been, all our personalities, they're still here. And fragments of it are still there to be discovered in the soil beneath our feet and tucked away in the caves. And we will yet find more answers. That's the beauty of it. Uh, it's a continuing, ongoing process of understanding. It's fluid. And ideas that, that hold up for decades or centuries, one discovery in a cave or turned up by a plough or by a metal detectorist or, or, or on some other archaeological excavation can completely and radically alter our understanding of the past. We don't know it all. We never will. How do you get your head around these shifting historical truths? I suppose it depends uh, on how a person, how an individual is wired up. You know, if, if you're someone who is, who's interested by maths... You know, numbers are fixed. It's a language that's to be understood. As an archaeologist, you're, you're dealing with something profoundly different. It's just traces of the way that people used to live in the past, and it's, and it's open to infinite interpretation. And, and all the time, it's, a, it's a, a jigsaw puzzle of an infinite number of pieces, and we only have some of them. And they've been assembled so far, and there's bits of sky missing, and there's bits of the ground missing, and there's bits right in the middle that are just missing. But every now and again, somebody finds another piece, and it gets fitted in. So it's a different experience. It's a story. There isn't an absolute truth about it. It's, it's, it's interpretation of evidence, and the, and the body of evidence keeps on being added to. Orkney... It's a, it's a valley of the kings, 
uh, it's as important, it matters as much as the Egyptian Valley of the Kings. Okay, you know, the pyramids are on a a different order of magnitude in terms of their scale, uh, but in 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 a different way, the Neolithic of Orkney is as important and it's as revealing when it comes to how our uh, human story has unfolded. Magic is elusive stuff, but on Orkney, uh, there, there is the, the unmistakable shimmer of magic, it, and it has something to do with the nature of the place. Whatever geological processes have unfolded there, it has created a, a, a kind of a theatre where you almost expect drama to unfold. When were the islands first occupied? People have been on Orkney probably since the last end of the last ice age, so let's say 10,000 years ago. And when, when hunters found their way to Orkney, the sea levels would have been about 150 feet lower than they are today. So th- there would have been uh, land that the hunters were using that has, in the intervening period, been inundated by the sea and is now 10, 20, 30, 40 feet underwater. Uh, so Orkney will have changed considerably uh, since the time when human beings first went there. There were probably trees, birch and uh, willow and alder. Uh, no doubt the hunters cut some of them down, maybe needed wood for fires or whatever. Then, when the farmers arrived, five, six thousand years ago, they would have continued the process, clearing the trees away to make way for fields where they could grow their crops, keep their animals. And so many thousands of years ago, Orkney would have become a largely treeless place. The trees were gone, and that's why the people built as they did using stone, because they they couldn't use timber. And then lo and behold, they found that the, the natural sandstone split in this very convenient fashion into handy building blocks. And just that the presence of that building material may have inspired people that, you know, had ideas. Well, we can build with this. We can do great things with this material. And people of ambition and artistic creativity expressed their ideas in the form of the chamber tombs, the, the, the stone circles and, and the rest of the wonders. And, the, and I use that word deliberately, the wonders of Neolithic Orkney. What does the story of Neolithic Orkney tell us about today? We are born into a, a form of the British Isles. And we take it for granted. We know, we all know where the important places are, where most people have chosen to live. So in Scotland, that's Glasgow, Edinburgh, Aberdeen, Inverness, Dundee, Stirling. In Ireland, you know, you've got, you've got Belfast, you've got Dublin. In England, you've got Manchester, Birmingham, London, of course. And it's easy to think, oh, well, this is probably the way it's always been. But what archaeology in particular and history tell us is that at different times, different places have mattered. We can get too hung up on the idea that the things that are important to us were always important. And it's not the case. If you go back enough thousands of years, other places mattered more. And now they're completely overlooked and forgotten. And that is prophetic. That means, well, maybe in 2,000 years' time, London won't matter anymore. Or in 10,000 years, there will be some other centre of gravity to which we are all drawn that nobody pays any attention to at the moment. You know, these, these glimpses of importance in the past 
you know, give us a heads up about what might happen in the future. So Orkney still has the power to teach us things today. You, you look at Orkney, you know, it appears in its own little box on the weather report because it's, it's, it's so peripheral. And, and, and you, you're given to believe that the, the, once you start travelling north through the British Isles that you're leaving importance behind and that, you're, and that, and that once you get to the, the top end of Scotland that you're, you're right out on the edge, the edge of the world. But if you turn around before you make the crossing to Orkney, if you turn your back to the sea, you can sense the Long Island of the British Isles stretching away. You almost get a feeling of vertigo because you know it's all there stretching away in front of you. And you think, I've now left everything important behind. And then you cross the Pentland Firth and you arrive at the archipelago of Orkney and you think this will always have been the edge of the universe. Nothing of importance could ever have happened here. Well, no. A brief tour of Neolithic Orkney is enough to remind you that once upon a time, it was important not just to the people of Orkney, not just to the people of Scotland, but it might have been the capital of that ancient Britain, the most important place where all the ideas were coming from. Harnessed by ancient architects, midwinter's first rays of morning sunlight send a finger of light trailing through the building's long, narrow passage to illuminate an abstract symbol carved into the central chamber's rock, a triple spiral symbolising life itself. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles, And to be sure to receive each episode of Neil's Love Letter to the British Isles as soon as it goes live, remember to subscribe. You can follow in my footsteps as my journey unfolds across these isles of ours by going to the website and seeing the places I've chosen and letting me know the locations that inspire you. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Fat Belly Films. Music by Malcolm Goldie. Additional research by Oscar, Evie, Lucian, Teddy and Archie. Finance by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production by Althorpe Studios. Graphics by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. An FBF Podcasts production.